unabashed. The most unpredictable becomes a headline. The most volatile outrageous behavior. Unsubstantiated narratives. A battle of personalities. Welcome to Grant Thamasha, a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindustan Times. I'm your host, Milan Vaishnav. India's path to power, strategy in a world adrift, is a manifesto written by eight of India's leading public intellectuals. The report seeks to chart out a course for India's foreign policy, but in so doing, it also delves into economics, the climate, global governance, and India's domestic politics. One of the report's key authors is Ambassador Shivshankar Menon. Ambassador Menon is a distinguished fellow at the Center for Social and Economic Progress in New Delhi. He has enjoyed a long and distinguished career in government, serving as National Security Advisor, Foreign Secretary, High Commissioner to China and Pakistan, among many other notable positions. It's a pleasure for me to welcome him to the podcast for the very first time. Ambassador, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I want to start by asking you about the origins of this report. It was published in October of last year, and it was put on the websites of the Center for Policy Research and the Takshashila Institution in Bangalore. Many people who read this report will recall that a decade ago or so, many of the same authors of this document issued a different report called Non-Alignment 2.0, uh, in which you also outlined a pretty ambitious strategic plan for India's future. Um, in this report, you reference the previous document and say that while many of the objectives and strategies you had laid out about a decade ago served India pretty well, there have been many changes on the global stage since then, and that's prompted you all to have a rethink. What are some of those changes that really drove you to put pen to paper a second time? Well, I think the reason we wanted, we thought we should look at it again, look at the whole issue again of India's grand strategy, was really because both India has changed and the world around it has changed. The world around it has changed in, in at least four fundamental ways. There's been a huge shift in the balance of power in terms of not just the rise of China, but of other countries, many of them in Asia, uh, but also in terms of the nature of China-US uh, strategic competition and rivalry. Uh, but and And also in terms of uh, technology, I mean, the effects of technology. And thirdly, uh, a pushback against globalization and a tendency for the world economy to actually fragment into large regional trading blocks into RCP or CPTPP in, in Asia, EU in Europe, you know, USMCA in, in North America, increasing protectionism. I think... Uh, what somebody called thick globalization is over. Uh, it's now hard globalization and much more difficult in a sense. But the biggest change to my mind has been also the uh, that inequality between within states and the threats to identity that globalization seemed to represent to many people have resulted in sort of new authoritarian populist politics in a host of countries. And some of this polarization, this, this re reliance on nationalism or ultra-nationalism for legitimacy, the rise of new authoritarian leaders, whether it's, you know, Japan, China, India, 
all the way up to Trump, I mean, in the U.S. Uh, this, I think, has really shifted the ground on which we're operating. And that's why we thought we need to, and India is no exception to the global sort of trend. So that's why we thought it was time to look at it. Besides, we were all, we'd just gone into lockdown and we thought we might as well use our time productively. <laughs> it's always nice to do this kind of thing with friends, you know, you sit regularly and talk about the big issues when when you can't do anything about it in your lockdown at home. Anyway. So, you know, some people were baking bread, some people were taking up gardening, you were writing global manifestos, which sounds much more productive. Um, I, I want to ask you about India's global positioning. And the report states pretty clearly that, you know, the ideal position for India in the Indo-US-China triangle, if we think about those three great powers, would be to have better bilateral relations individually with both the US and China than they have with each other. Now, we are speaking at a time when the relationship between India and China appears at a low point. Uh, and I'm wondering if you can imagine, at least in the near term, a less confrontational, more cooperative bilateral arrangement between India and China. Well, less confrontational and more cooperative? I certainly hope so, at least. And this is a report for the decade, don't forget. So over the next 10 years, certainly I hope so, because relations really are bad today, at least the political relationship. And the situation on the border is not good. I mean, there's over 100,000 troops overwintering in some of the most hostile terrain on earth uh, and confronting each other. And the old arrangements, which we'd put in place in, play in terms of confidence-building measures and standard operating procedures, uh, have broken down since the deaths in 2020. So, yes, I certainly hope it improves from this. But the question really is how and when, and that's much harder to foresee. Uh, because... <clears throat> I think partly because the domestic politics that I already mentioned, uh, and also because, you know, neither side seems to have actually taken the plunge to, to address these issues. Everybody's preoccupied with COVID, with, with other, with domestic politics. Everybody's been, all governments have actually been diminished by what's happened in the last two years. And I think domestic social contracts are being renegotiated. Uh, so it's, it's not an easy time to deal with such big issues in India-China relations. As for the triangle, India-China and the U.S., you know, that's an ideal situation from an Indian point of view to have better relations with both. Uh, but that's not likely in the immediate future until India and China manage to make some progress on the relationship. Uh, the great beneficiary of, of what's happened uh, between India and China in the last two years, the deterioration, the crisis in India-China relations, is really the India-U.S. relationship. I mean, India and the U.S. today in defense, security, intelligence, do most of, many of the things that, that allies do without a formal alliance or a mutual defense uh, commitment, we are actually doing much that, that allies do, and we coordinate, we work together, and that congruence, certainly in maritime Asia, in the Indo-Pacific, is growing steadily. 
And I see that relationship with, with a bright future. But whether India will actually have better relations with both, uh, which I suppose is a pretty Kissingerian formulation. It's what Kissinger used to say in, in the early 70s about uh, the U.S. wanting better relations with both China and Russia than they had with each other, which wasn't difficult at that time, considering what Sino-Russian relations were like. Uh, but today, uh, I'm not sure that that is immediately on the horizon. But, you know, things change. Politics is a process, so it's not going to stay the same forever. Let me push you a little bit on the United States, because as you rightly point out, there has been this steady deepening as well as broadening of the U.S.-India bilateral relationship. You were in government for many years. You were responsible when in a position of power for creating some of the frameworks that have led to the kind of robust cooperation we see today. But it's no secret that politics in the United States has taken a pretty dark turn uh, in the last several years. And um, I think, you know, on, on many people's lists of top 10 geopolitical risks, the U.S. domestic politics is, is, is number one or number two. Are you worried that India may be placing too many eggs in the American basket, as it were, particularly when it comes to things like, you know, the strategic side of the house, defense, intelligence, and so on? Not really. Uh, for what worries me is the turn inwards that has taken place in both American and Indian politics. Politics in both countries has also become much more fractious, some say polarized, and much harder to predict. That worries me. But as far as India and the U.S. working together, I, I, I am not that worried, actually, that the domestic politics will... In, it's interesting. The domestic politics actually prevents both countries from doing what they should be doing on the economic side and the commercial side. They seem to find that much harder than the politics, the defense, and the sort of geopolitical coordination. Uh, which is slightly different it's from, say, India-China relations, where it's the other way around, uh, where trade is booming despite this crisis on the border. Uh, but why do I think that India-US is different? Partly it's because of the way India and the US are structured. I mean, you know, we have a constitution which is drawn to a very great extent on the US constitution. You know this better than most. Uh, and... The fundamental idea there was checks and balances. We don't trust one or other institution or depend on just one or other institution to make our democracies work. Uh, so even if you, in the, say in the US case, if, if you have a dysfunctional White House at some time, there's always somewhere else to go to get your work done. Go to Congress, go to the companies, go, go to you know wherever. Uh, it's the same in India. If the central government drops the ball, the states pick up the slack. I mean, you've seen that in responses to COVID, for instance. Or society actually does. There's a huge amount of volunteerism which goes on. So I actually think that because of this, because we're designed for failure, as it were, it's, uh, it actually works in our favor. We can cope with crisis. We might be slow getting to the point of dealing with it. You saw it in COVID. But ultimately, we pull our socks up and society responds as a whole. And we're not dependent on one central 
idea or order being absolutely correct and working all the time. And this is why India-U.S. relations have worked. Even in the bad times, we had Congress. We did work together on certain issues during the Kennedy-Eisenhower, second Eisenhower administration on Tibet, for instance. Uh, we did and look at what we did together on the Green Revolution, you know, just when we had huge political arguments about Vietnam, etc. But, but we still did things together. And that, for me, is the strength of this relationship, that it can survive crisis and differences on various issues. Even today, I mean, we don't have identity of views on things like Iran and Russia. You know, if you ask most Indians, they'll tell you Ukraine's a, a distraction from the real business of preventing Russia being pushed into Chinese arms. But that's that's a different, you know, that's... But this relationship can cope with it. And that's what gives me confidence. Structure, the way we are structured to deal with it, our experience of dealing with difference, and we're democracies. So we know how to do this. Hey, Grant the Masha listeners. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Putting this show together each week is a labor of love, but it takes a lot of work to put out a great show every week. If you'd like to support the work we do at Grant the Masha, please visit ceip.org slash donate. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite podcasting platform, so you'll be the first to know when a new episode rolls out. Let me shift the gaze a little bit closer to home uh, and ask you about the neighborhood. When Mr. Modi came to power in 2014, his government talked a lot about reinvigorating India's relationships in the neighborhood, right? And we all remember the scenes of his inauguration when the neighboring heads of state all showed up. And this was a very powerful piece of symbolism. But if you fast forward to today, there are worrisome signs all around the region, whether it's Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Nepal, you name it, um, where there are actually signs of decay in India's relationship with many of its uh, erstwhile friends. Where do you think this kind of neighborhood-first policy has gone wrong? Well, I think it's, I mean, some of it is being distracted. You know, I mean, COVID has been a huge distraction. Also, domestic politics has got more complex. Uh, and... That seems to have driven several decisions in the neighborhood. But, and, but there's two other problems. There are problems of implementation. And these are capacity problems built in to the way we implement the neighborhood-first policy, which I think across the political spectrum, everybody, everybody agrees that this is a priority for us. We need a peaceful periphery if we are to transform India. That's, that's, that's accepted. So the will is there, but, you know, the ability to actually translate that on the ground is limited. Secondly, the Indian economy has been slowing for some time, pre-COVID as well. And one of the most powerful, I think, instruments, I mean, I don't want to put it in this transactional sense, but one of the ways in which India has worked best with the neighbors is by opening her economy and economic integration. Uh, you know, Nepal survived 12 years of civil war with only one year of negative growth. Why? Because it's it, the economy is open to the Indian economy, and those were India's high growth years. Same thing with Sri Lanka, 26 years of civil war, 
one year of negative growth, but increasingly open to the Indian economy. And, and it, we, you know, it, it helps the relationship. Lastly, and the last, third thing that's very important, I think, to my mind is uh, the influence that India has as a democracy, as an open society, as a successful democratic experiment, even at a relatively low level of economic development. And that example and the links that that built across the subcontinent, apart from Pakistan, in Pakistan it was seen as a threat, but in elsewhere, it, it really did make a big difference to the ability to work together. Uh, and the more we centralize policy, the less likely it is that policy with neighbors is going to be successful on the ground. You know, with Bangladesh, for instance, some of the most successful things we did was were to settle the, the border enclaves and so on, and just open up border hearts to allow people the normal flow of life to begin across open borders with Nepal, for instance, and so on. And that I think is something that we might have lost over the last few years. So in, in all these three respects, so it's I think we need to look at actually how we implement the neighborhood first policy and adjust accordingly. There is, of course, the bigger geopolitical factor. China is much more active in the region right now. The China-US rivalry has brought both of them into the region. I mean, suddenly Nepal is being wooed for free and open Indo-Pacific landlocked Nepal, uh, China is busy pushing BRI into, China's committed over $100 billion to the subcontinent, the BRI. Uh, let's see how it works out in practice. But, and its biggest commitment is actually to Pakistan. So yes, India will have to step up its game in the subcontinent and stay relevant, be a source of stability and prosperity in the subcontinent. This report has an entire chapter devoted to the subject of hard power. And it has what I found one of the most disturbing uh, passages uh, in the entire report, which is on the subject of civil military relations. And I just want to quote uh, a selection from the report, which says, among the senior leadership and the leadership of the military here, the conflation of the government with the state has distorted the traditional outlook that the military's loyalty lies with the constitution and not with the party in power. And when you read something like that, um, I think one should have kind of alarm bells ringing, right? Because if you reflect on the past 75 years of experience, India has really distinguished itself uh, when compared to its neighbors uh, with its ability to keep the military apart from civilian affairs. Do you think we have, in a sense, kind of crossed the Rubicon? Is there a dangerous red line that, that has been transgressed? Not yet. No, I don't think so. I think there are, there are those in the system who are tempted, perhaps. There have been attempts. There is, uh, And there isn't too much clarity, I think, on this issue. It's not as though we have a political leadership uh, who have thought deeply about these issues, or on the military side, where I think, frankly, we've just got used to to the way it was, and therefore have started taking things for granted. I think it would be very sad if that distinction between the professional military sphere 
and politics or the running of the country, if that were to be blurred and that line were to be crossed. But it hasn't happened yet, no. I think we're quite quite some way away from that. Uh, and you can see it in two or three negative ways. You can't say that India's foreign policy has been militarized, uh, which is what would be one immediate sign. Uh, and what you are seeing increasingly, actually, is an awareness that this is a problem, which is why it's discussed. And the mere fact that gives me hope, because that suggests that people are no longer just taking for granted that you have an apolitical uh, is uh, armed force and that therefore they'll stay up. But we have to be aware that, that the Indian armed forces have been used for internal security duties for a long time. And uh, the logical end of that is for them to naturally be concerned about the politics that drag them into internal security. And it's a messy job. And it's a very different job from the job they're actually set up to do. Uh, that they've coped so far is quite remarkable, and that they are still fundamentally apolitical is also quite remarkable. Uh, the temptation is always there, you know, for politicians to wrap themselves in the flag, to be seen with the military. I mean, you've seen it in the US, we've seen it here. But I think the military itself, I think, is aware of, of what of the dangers. Of the, so no, I wouldn't say that we've crossed a red line or the Rubicon. Uh, but I think we need to be aware of the problem, and that's why we flagged it in there. One of the things I like about this report is that it delves into a set of issues that are often shunted to the side in many foreign policy discussions. And, and one of those issues is the environment and climate. And the report is pretty clear-eyed about the fact that uh, this notion that there is a trade-off between economic development and ecological preservation, that idea is misplaced, that there is no such trade-off. And I'm wondering, as you reflect on where India has been, where it is, where it might be going, if this is a sort of a, a good news story or success story, because, you know, if you look at the past five to 10 years, India has taken some pretty bold steps uh, to address climate change. It did it through COP21 in Paris. It's made a, a net zero commitment uh, at COP26, many uh, scientists would like to see some of the details fleshed out, but you still have the rhetoric from the prime minister setting out a marker. Um, is this a place where you think India deserves high marks? I think we certainly deserve more credit than we get. Uh, not only because of, you know, declaratory statements or negotiations, international negotiations. Whether we have achieved something, we'll only know much later. Because frankly, this is not only India's problem, and our success will depend on the world succeeding in what it's doing. So it's harder to say. Uh, but I think when you look at the concrete situation and the actions that have been taken, you look at the solar initiative, for instance, and the addition of renewable energy, you look at the fact that coal is likely over the next decade, less than half the 100 gigawatts of coal fired power plants, which were supposed to come online this decade, are likely to come online. Partly because the price of renewable, the tariffs for renewable energy today in India are better than they are for, for coal. So it actually makes sense if you're building a new power plant to invest in renewable energy rather than coal-fired plants. doesn't mean we'll stop our dependence on coal, uh, but 
certainly it won't be at the rate at which it was projected to grow earlier. Uh, our fundamental problem, however, remains. We cannot continue our present to maintain present levels of per capita energy poverty if we are to industrialize and develop the country. And that we have to worry about. So I think we've done some big things. We really, and we've announced some very ambitious targets. Uh, we've also made commitments internationally, which gives me hope that we will actually implement most of these. So yes, I think we deserve much more credit than we've been given, but the hard work is still ahead. I want to circle back to where we started this conversation when you were describing what has changed since the Non-Alignment 2.0 report came out. And, and certainly one of the things which has changed is that India has adopted a much more inward-looking economic posture, uh, which runs against really the trend since 91, if not earlier, of you know, a more outward orientation of its economy, an embrace of globalization, and so on and so forth. Now, many in the West and many around the world, like the United States, have also moved in that direction. Um, is India really so unique? I mean, if the rest of the world is going from point A to point B, doesn't it make sense for India also to follow suit? Well, you know, we argue that India needs engagement with the world. And the more engaged we are, the better it would be for our economy, for our society, and uh, for our future. We have a separate chapter in, in the report which actually argues that India must engage with the rest of the world. Because you're right, we have turned inward. If you look at average uh, tariff rates, for instance, since 2012, when they were averaging around 12%, they're now up to about 18%, uh, which is quite a, quite a hike. Uh, they've gone up every year for the last five years. Uh, we walked out of the RCEP negotiations for the regional free trade area in Asia after eight years of negotiation and opted out. So yes, we have turned inwards, but we're not the only ones, as you pointed out. We, Atmanirbharta or self-reliance, Xi Jinping's talking of self-reliance, dual circulation, and the U.S. also is building back better at home. Uh, and I don't think there's much prospect of, of the U.S. entering into new commitments, you know, or going back to TPP and so on. So, yes, it seems to be part of a global trend. But the fact is that India can't do without the world, partly because of our res, uh, resource endowment. Uh, we need the world for energy, for oil. We import coal as well. Uh, we need the world for fertilizer. We need the world for non-ferrous metals. I mean, these are fundamental to running the economy. And 80% of India's imports are maintenance imports. And even today, the external sector, well, trade and merchandise goods, account for somewhere in the mid-30s, almost 33 34% of India's GDP. That's a sizable amount. So for India, in order to maintain its economy and economic growth, it needs to import. And the only way to pay for those imports is by exporting, well, the primary way of paying for it. And therefore, we need to engage with the world economically and be much more involved. And that's the argument we make in the report. We actually think there are opportunities here. It's, it's not all gloom and doom in the report, by the way. 
we, there are a whole set of opportunities that we see, uh, including on the export side. But we also see enhanced diplomatic space and some strategic options over the next decade or so. Let me end this conversation by asking you about a big picture issue, one that is controversial in some quarters, which is the state of Indian democracy. Um, there have been some who have commented on your report saying, well, you know, this report would have had more legs had the authors not felt the need to wade into issues of democracy and liberal freedoms and constitutionalism. But you and your colleagues uh, are pretty pointed in saying that, look, democratic renewal at home is absolutely fundamental to India's ability to effectively project power abroad. And I'm wondering for those critics or naysayers who are out there, might you address what is it about democracy at home and democratic rejuvenation that is important for India's power projection overseas? Well, you know, when you look at rising powers in the world, and I think most people would have counted India as a rising power, still look at it as one, uh, they need three things. They need hard power, military, economic power. They accumulate that. Secondly, they need narrative control. They need, they need a narrative of why they are rising while they follow an accommodational policy with the existing order until they are powerful enough to start shaping that order. And they need to explain to their own people, to the rest of the world, why they are rising, why their rise is good, what the point of it is, what their goals are. And thirdly, they need the rest of the world to recognize their rise as well and enable it. I mean, it's hard to do it without these. So, and for two and three, democracy is really for us, I think, and has been for many years, one of our best calling cards. It's worked for us, it's worked with our neighbors, it's worked with the world as a whole. So for me, this is important as a part of well, India's path to power, as we call it, in this in this world adrift, which we a world between orders where things are all in motion, uh, as we see it. So, for me, there is a direct link between India's internal order, how we manage our own affairs, and how the rest of the world sees us, and therefore our ability to actually work with the rest of the world. We need to engage but we need to engage with the world and the world needs to be ready to engage with us. And I see this as important. So I'm not sure that in today's day and age, in globalized economy, where with today's you know, information uh, technology at work, with a connected world, I don't see how we can suddenly draw a line and say, yeah, we'll run our internal affairs whichever way we choose, but, you know, we will also deal with the rest of the world and everything else is going to be open except uh, I don't think you can draw those those lines anymore. And I think that's one of the changes in a globalized world where even politics, uh, what used to be local, purely local, and a lot of the pushback that you're getting is because this people feel threatened by this, by this open world, by what the outside world. And today you see the world in the palm of your hand and literally with in in a smartphone you know so and it's that threat to identities that we are seeing working out in domestic politics everywhere 
but I don't see how you can avoid this. So for me, it's important how we order our own affairs. Also, it enables us to actually bring the entire nation together to actually you know, achieve the transformation of India, which is what we want to do. My guest on the show this week is Ambassador Shiv Shankar Menon. He is a distinguished fellow at the Center for Social and Economic Progress in New Delhi. He is the co-author with seven of his colleagues of a new report titled India's Path to Power, Strategy in a World Adrift. It is a, a wise document, uh, a deeply researched one, and I'll just add uh, extremely wide ranging. Uh, there are experts who uh, have worked on this who are, have expertise in the fields of development, of technology, of foreign affairs, of defense, of domestic governance. Uh, Ambassador, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. I enjoyed that. Thank you very much. Grant Masha is a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindustan Times. This podcast is an HD Smartcast original and is available on hdsmartcast.com, India's fastest growing podcasting platform. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate and review. helps others find the show more easily. For more information about the show and to find the writing we reference on this week's episode, visit our website, GrantTheMasha.com. Production assistance comes from Caroline Duckworth, Tim Martin is our audio engineer, and Cliff J. Pranada is our executive producer. Thanks for listening and see you next week. This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.